As we approach Richard's baptism this evening, I want simply to explain so far as I am able the words in front of us tonight. And as I do so, I depend on the leading of the Holy Spirit and uh, the leniency of a loving Heavenly Father if I get something wrong. There are a couple of complex bits in the verses that I just read. When we see someone baptized, we are not simply seeing someone go through the motions of religious ritual. We are not seeing someone go into water to be saved. We are not seeing someone pass through some sort of mystical uh, blessed waters so that all of their sins can be covered and washed away and they can go and live their life however they please. We are observing a message in itself. This is a sermon. This is a proclamation. It is a public portrayal of what has already happened in someone's heart. It is a manifestation of a number of things that have taken place in the life of the Christian or will yet take place in view of eternity. I invariably, when I'm preparing someone for baptism, speak in terms of four things. History. When someone is baptized, they are publicly portraying and proclaiming, I believe in the history of Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus really lived. I believe that Jesus really died for my sins. I believe that Jesus is risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. I go down and I come up again because I believe in Jesus Christ. Not only do I believe in the history of Jesus Christ, I believe in unity with Jesus Christ. I believe that I have been united with Jesus Christ in his death by grace through faith in him. And not only am I united with him in his death, I am raised to walk in newness of life. So I am united in his resurrection. You can read all about that in Romans chapter 6. Jesus died. In the death he died, he died to sin. So the death I die, I die also to sin, that I might walk in newness of life. Unity. Uh, purity. I am saying that I believe that I need the purity of Jesus Christ. I cannot wash myself. I cannot cleanse myself. I cannot make myself good in the eyes of God. I could never do enough good in this life to counterbalance the bad that I have done. There are various religious systems over the history of the world that have proposed that when we die, we enter into the presence of God. 
Nothing particularly unusual about that to those of us who are Christians. But it gets a bit odd when you, you hear about God presenting a scale. And either God or the gods present a scale and weigh your sins against your good deeds. To the ancient Egyptians, they weighed man's heart against a feather. And if the heart was light, then it was unburdened by sin and the person could sail across to eternal life. Uh, Similarly, in Islam, if a person is bad and yet they've done enough good to outweigh the bad, then they will be welcomed into paradise. But if they are completely bad and their badness outweighs the good, then unfortunately they will go to hell. That's not what the scriptures teach as pertains to how God judges us as to how we can be saved. Yes, there is good and there is bad. Yes, there is righteousness and there is evil, wickedness. But God is not going to grant you entrance into heaven on the basis of whether your good deeds outweighed the bad because your good deeds could never outweigh the bad. None of us is good. None of us is righteous. None of us is right with God on the merits of who we are or how we are. We can only enter into the presence of God because God is gracious and he's revealed his grace to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if we're trusting in Jesus Christ, we are saying Jesus Christ has died for my sins. He's representing me. And so I enter into the presence of God, not on the merits of my own righteousness, but on Christ's righteousness. And then finally, when I'm preparing someone for baptism, I'll talk not only about history, unity and purity, but we must look also to eternity. Because one day, the fact of the matter is we will die. And when we die... Our body will be disposed of in some expedient way. And in any case, whether it's burial or cremation or some tragedy has beset you and uh, you can't be found, God forbid, but that's where the imagination goes, all of the uh, wild uh, alternatives to the two main options. Your body will go back to dust because from dust you were made your body will go back to ashes. For from the ashes you have come. But they won't stay there. The one who goes down into the ground will come back up, who's trusting in Jesus Christ. we, We believe not only in Christ's resurrection, but we believe in our resurrection. We believe that Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, and He will raise those who are dead. He'll put back everything that has gone away about the dead person, and He'll realize the one who created us surely can recreate us with new spiritual eternal bodies that are not perishable. 
and will pass judgment on us, whether to life eternally with him in heaven or forever experiencing his justice in hell. History, unity, purity, eternity. And very similarly, that, that, that structure is found somewhat in this text. But there are some very specific things it tells us about Christ that I want to draw your attention to tonight. First of all, we portray the suffering of Christ in baptism. He says, does he not, that Christ also suffered once for sins. Later on in the text, verse 21, as he's building his argument, which is actually about how to endure suffering, um, he says baptism, which corresponds to this, corresponds to what? Well, it corresponds to the immediate context, some stuff that we'll talk about in just a moment that Noah went through. But all of that is a shadow of what Jesus Christ went through. The world was destroyed by flood in the days of Noah. Christ's body was also destroyed. Baptism corresponds with this. Baptism proclaims this, that Jesus Christ suffered once for sins. He is not only our great high priest. He is not only our ever reigning king. He is the sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice once and for all. We do not need the blood of lambs because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we portray that suffering in baptism. Richard, in a few moments, will go under the water reminding us that Jesus Christ died. He suffered once for our sins. But not only do we portray the suffering of Christ in baptism, we profess the substitution of Christ in baptism. So as he is portraying Christ dying as he goes under the water, he is also professing, I believe that the death Jesus died, he died for me. And I am holding on to that. I am believing that. I am professing that Jesus Christ died in my place. The death I deserve to die, He died. The judgment I should have been placed under, He was placed under. We read this uh, similarly in uh, chapter 2, verse 21. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. But Christ, again, is more than just an example. There are some who have tried to reduce the gospel and, uh, into terminology of example. And, um, you know, uh, Christ suffered so we know how to suffer better or we know how to suffer well. All of that is true, but that is not the full story. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. You can follow in his steps, but we read more. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Why? The answer is in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
Jesus died for our sins. So if you're wondering how you can enter into the presence of God, you must trust in Jesus Christ. You have no assurance, no confidence that your goodness will permit you entrance into heaven. Only God's grace in Jesus Christ can save you. That's it. That's the only way you will enter the presence of the Lord if you trust in Jesus Christ. He is the one who has suffered for our sins in his body. Why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So there's more to this than just portraying Christ's suffering. There's more to this than just professing Christ's substitution. We plead for the spotlessness of Christ in baptism. Why? Because you and I are sinners. We've done wrong. We've done bad things. But Jesus Christ can wash us. Clean as snow. Pure as snow. Whiter, the scriptures tell us, than any launderer's soap could wash us. Hmm. When Richard is baptized in a moment, he will explain how in the water, baptism does not save him as a removal of dirt from the body. Verse 21. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Does anyone have another rendering for that? Any other translation in the room? Or are we all ESV for change? 24. Sorry, not 24. 21. An appeal to God for what conscience? A pure conscience. Good conscience. You have good conscience. Okay. Somewhere else I've read it. Pure conscience. A good conscience is one that is washed. A good conscience is one that is clean. One that is innocent. One that is pure and, 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 and purified. We are pleading for the spotlessness of Christ in baptism. We're saying, look, I, I go down into this water. I don't believe that this literally washes me. I don't believe that this is what washes away my sins. I believe that it is the blood of Jesus Christ that washes me of my sins. But this water is important. It, it is not empty of power or purpose or meaning. It is all about good conscience, appealing to God. It's saying, Lord, I need you. Lord, I am filthy and defiled and, and, and dirtied by sin. I'm sullied by sin. I, I, I'm, I'm unclean by sin. But you can wash me. And that's why I'm coming to you. It's not saying I've arrived. Look at me, I'm clean. I'm pure. I'm okay now. I don't need you. <laughs> Really, I'm just doing this as a sign, as a symbol. No, it's, it's saying, no, I need you. I'm not what I should be. 
My life is not what I would like it to look like. It's not clean. It's not pure. It's a mess. But I'm coming to you because I'm a mess. I hear it so many times. People tell me, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I am, I'm believing in Jesus, but I don't know how I feel about baptism because I just have so much mess in my life and I need to get sorted out before I'm baptized. And I, I'm thinking, wait a second, trust in Jesus Christ is, is because you're a mess. Baptism is because you're a mess. And you're saying, I need Jesus to wash me because I can't do it myself. Are you following me? There's a little bit there that you're still wondering about and you're thinking, oh, he's just going to skip right over, right over all of that um, spirits in prison and Noah business, isn't he? I, I've, saved, I've saved that till the end. We not only portray the suffering of Christ in baptism, we not only profess the substitution of Christ in baptism, we not only plead for the spotlessness of Christ in baptism, we proclaim the sovereignty of Christ in baptism. And so he says, Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That suffering, that substitution, later in the text, we saw spotlessness. But let's look at sovereignty in these words. Put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. There are a few different interpretations of this. Uh, there are, are those who would say, and I, I see the argument that it's talking about how in the same way Jesus proclaimed in spirit, in spiritual terms, as the eternal son of God proclaimed good news in the days of Noah. You know what I'm talking about? Where, 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 where Noah was preaching righteousness for over a hundred years. And no one believed, no one trusted except Noah and his family. And they got on the boat and they were saved through the storm. They were saved through suffering, through the, the waters of that flood, right? And he's saying he's made alive in spirit in the same way he's always been alive. He was alive back then in the days of Noah and in spirit, communicated good news of hope and salvation through Noah to the world in that, in, in that time. But there's one other rendering, and I find that uh, compelling. Either one emphasizes God's power in Christ, God's sovereignty in Christ. And that is to say that Jesus is dead on the cross and he, he was right to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. 
But you know what else? He also had a bit of time, three days to be precise, in which to go to those demonic, malevolent forces that consumed the world, that led people astray in sin, that enslaved them, that bound them, that broke them, that oppressed them. And he's saying, I'm victorious. I am triumphant. And he is subjecting, as the scripture then says, angels, authorities, and powers. Everything that bound us, everything that was against us, everything that would conquer us, the things that were so strong, that so gripped the world in the days of Noah, that no one believed, and no one but a man and his wife and his sons, three sons and their three wives were saved. So powerful. Jesus is greater than them. Jesus is more powerful than them. Jesus is king. He's sovereign. He reigns. And so when Richard is going into the waters, he is going to proclaim, Jesus is my king. And he's going to tell you, Lord willing, about some of the the powers that have been in his life, some of the authorities that have reigned over him, some of the, the, um, the angels that have uh, not been ministering spirits to comfort him and to protect him, but to deceive him and to torment him. But Jesus Christ is king and has won and has brought Richard to repentance of sin and faith in Jesus. It's wonderful news. The world was destroyed. Christ's body was destroyed. The flood in the days of Noah washed away the sinners of the world. Christ washes away the sins of the world. The ark brought eight people safely through water. Jesus brings an innumerable number of whoever believes in him safely through fiery trials and death into his eternal life. That's what this is all about. People who were going through another kind of baptism, a baptism of fire, of blood, people who were suffering intensely under persecution because they were Christians. And Peter is saying, it's going to be okay because it was okay for Noah and his family and it's okay for all who have passed through these waters. Because Jesus reigns. Because Jesus is king. That's what it's about. That's very good news indeed. Do you believe in this Jesus? Do you believe in the suffering of Christ? Do you believe in the substitution of Christ? What about the spotlessness of Christ? What about the sovereignty of Christ? All of these things are things that Richard is going to attest to in the waters of baptism tonight. You can suffer and suffer well because of Christ. Richard 
Life's not going to be easy going forward. I hope it's easier than it has been prior to this. I wish I could make promises of that. Um, It will be blessed. You'll have the blessed assurance of the presence of Christ in and with you. And you'll have the assurance of the love of his people with you. And that's a change. That's different. That's better, isn't it? But there will be difficulties. There might be people who don't take kindly to this new Richard. There may be people who aren't so impressed with all that you say. There may be people who remember the old Richard. And they, they're in disbelief that you can have changed and that you can continue to change. Um, there may be people who bring up old sins and might ask, acts like, you, you, can't, you can't be right with God. God will never accept you because you did this, didn't you? And they'll try to talk about sin and the nature of your sin and how bad it is and how it separates you from right relationship with God. Give them scripture. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And if he suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, then that means if you're righteous, you don't need Jesus. But if you are unrighteous, you do need Jesus. Jesus didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. So those who stand over you in judgment, whether they're people or powers, they can't. If you're right with God in Christ, they cannot accuse you or condemn you. That's God's business. And if he's already declared you clean in Jesus Christ, we believe that he will keep you and he will hold you fast in his love. And so we encourage you to keep yourself in the love of God, as the Apostle Jude wrote. It's interesting. All of this comes from Peter. Peter is the disciple who most resisted and resented the concept of a suffering Messiah. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem to die. To fulfill all that Peter is now writing about sometime later. And Peter stood in his way and said, no, you mustn't. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. This is just after Peter had said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And on that occasion, Jesus pronounced blessing upon him. So one one minute he's blessed, the next minute he's Satan. It's because he, while he saw that Jesus was the Christ, he didn't see what it meant to be the Christ, that the Christ had to die. But we can be thankful that he died because he didn't stay dead, he's risen. And so Richard will not only go down under the water, he will come up from the water. And he will remind us of the resurrection triumph of Jesus Christ. And he will remind us that the one who died once for sins is now raised for our justification and is ascended to the right hand of God with all authorities, all powers, all angels, the good and the bad subjected to him. That's powerful stuff. That's stuff worth preaching, stuff worth portraying, stuff worth praising God for. Let's pray.